once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, Hello and welcome. It's uh, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, although I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely not sure exactly what day the Jubilee is. No one I've asked seems to know, but uh, here with me today, um, because everyone else is off enjoying the celebrations, presumably, um, is Alistair Grant, our political editor. Alistair, do you have any particular plans to enjoy our great overlord and leader? Um, uh, I, I mean, I... I suppose I don't, but I wish her well. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's difficult for, uh, for for me to get excited. I, 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 listeners might not might not be surprised to learn I'm not a massive royalist. <laughs> but there you go. Um, let's talk about uh, lots going on this week in uh, the world of Scottish politics. Most notably, the resource spending review. Um, which came out on Tuesday. Um, Kate Forbes stood up uh, in Parliament and gave a update on how the government is going to be spending its money for the next five years. Um, basically, we had a, a, prior to that a warning from the IFS, which uh, you know repeated a number that the government themselves have published about three point five billion black hole in the government's finances. And Tuesday, Alistair, as you're about to describe. It was the government closing that gap. What happened? Yeah, so as you said, the background to this is the Scottish government previously kind of projecting a growing gap between its funding and spending of around £3.5 billion by 2026. So this is due to a number of factors, some within the Scottish government's control, some outside of it. So it's stuff like expensive policy commitments, such as the, the devolution of social security benefits. Um, it's stuff like income tax shortfalls, the impact of the pandemic, sky-high inflation. So it's all having an impact. It's all feeding into this. Um, and the resource spending review, as you said, uh, which is kind of setting out the, the kind of broad spending parameters of the Scottish government for the next four years, was kind of published in the wake of this. It was the Scottish government's attempt to try and kind of balance the books, if you will. Uh, so obviously, if you're facing a £3.5 billion funding gap, it's going to mean difficult decisions. There's going to be winners and losers. And I think there certainly was losers. So... I think first the winners to start with. So the main one is social security. So social security spending is forecast to rise by as much as 48% um, as new kind of Scottish benefits are more generous than their, than their UK equivalents come into the system. So this has been the kind of devolution of social security benefits in general has been a kind of major plank of Nicola Sturgeon's government. I think it's something that she sort of sees of as part of her legacy. Um, 
So that is obviously one of the winners. I think the other one where we saw spending rise or spending due to rise over the next four years is health. So I think it's 2.6% in real terms over the next four years. Although I think it's worth saying that that is not anywhere close to the amount that I think it's widely expected that they'll need due to kind of rising demand. So although there is a rise there, it's not, it's, it's still going to be extremely tight. It's not really enough in some senses. Uh, spending on climate and transport also saw rises uh, and education and skills as well, but not higher education. So losers, and I think it's worth touching on what the Institute for Fiscal Studies who you mentioned earlier said here as well. It's basically budgets for local government, the police, prisons, justice, universities, rural affairs, all due to fall, fall by around 8% in real terms over the next four years. And that is equivalent to a real terms cut of £1.1 billion over the next four years. So it's a huge amount. Uh, enterprise, tourism, trade promotion, all set to plummet by more than that, 16% over the next four years in real terms. So it's huge or you know, weighty cuts expected. And I think councils, the police, unions, fire unions, Law Society of Scotland, all sounding the alarm over what this will mean. I think many of these areas, councils, police, you know, the courts, legal aids are already struggling. They're already under huge pressures. And this is just going to exacerbate that. Um, so I think it is a real source of worry. And I think one of the one of the other areas actually that we did a little bit of coverage in today's paper that's worth mentioning is things like Historic Environment Scotland. We're seeing huge cuts, huge cuts, just in cash terms as well, not even in real terms. Uh, and Historic Environment Scotland already has problems funding its kind of upkeep of historic buildings. There's lots of them that are closed right now due to various factors, including the impact of climate change, actually. So uh, that is a real worry going forward, I think, as well, how they're going to be able to afford to upkeep these buildings to do the things that we're, we're, we're very used to them doing. Scotland's obviously very proud of its history, so I think that's one to look out for. And the other aspect of the spending review uh, was tax. And essentially, the spending review is obviously not a budget, so it's not setting out tax arrangements for the future, but the Independent Scottish Fiscal Commission, which is the Scottish government's official forecaster, if you will, um, basically sets out implicit assumptions that are underlying these spending plans. So it's assumed the higher rate threshold will be frozen rather than kind of increased in line with inflation. Uh, this will raise extra money for the Scottish government, but it's also going to bring more people up into that higher rate threshold. Uh, it's also sort of assuming that the Scottish government will not cut the basic rate of tax to 19p uh, like the rest of the UK in 2024. So again, that means extra cash for the Scottish government, but it also means that more of those people on kind of comparatively lower incomes will be paying more income tax and middle and higher earners will be paying more income tax. So that kind of growing gap between Scotland and the rest of the UK will grow some more, essentially. Uh, and I think finally, one of the kind of stark things I thought about all of this, uh, I think it was contained actually in the Scottish Fiscal Commission's report, was basically that they're warning that uh, we're going to see the biggest fall in kind of real household disposable income since records began. So you've got incomes plummeting and you've got public services facing cuts, essentially. So it's, it's quite grim, to be honest, but that is that is the outlook for the next few years. Yeah, it's 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 particularly bad. There was a good... There was a good um... Uh, graph, I should say, or select a group of graphs uh, issued by the, the the Scottish Parliament's you know independent research um, team known as Spice, um, which kind of sets out exactly what the real terms and also the kind of you know cash terms budgets for all of these 
uh, different places are. And as you said, you know, pretty much every single, um, <laughs> pretty much every single uh, spending portfolio in government is going to see a real terms drop for the next three years. Um, a handful of them will see, you know, kind of rises towards the end. But I mean, local government, it's a real terms cut of 750 million health and social care. It's flat real terms, which in in, in effect, given demand for services, he says, is a, is probably a cut. Um, the Crown Office in the Procurator Fiscal, it's a cut of £8 million over the next five years. Scottish Parliament's budget is going to drop by £10 million. That's, you know, commissioners like the Children's Commissioner, like the Information Commissioner, all of their budgets come from there. I mean, it's it's very, very, very scary if you... Uh, um, Looking at this, if you're if you're a civil servant, I think you'd be worried. I think that was one of the things in the spending review as well that you know the government has essentially committed itself. I believe the language was returned to pre-pandemic levels of staffing. Now, the the graphs that they they released with that, they, you know, they didn't put any numbers on it, but the graphs suggest that that's around thirty thousand jobs um, within the public sector that that would have to be cut um, over the next four or five years. Um, and they've also said that the pay bill, so that's not pay grades, that's pay bill. So you can have movement in and around um, within the civil service. You know, there will be pay rises, but the overall pay bill will be flat. And that's a real terms, you know, cut to the public sector budget as well over time. Um, on the Scottish Fiscal Commission on Tax, I think it was 230,000 people will be dragged into the higher rate of tax and an extra 80,000 p- people will go into the basic rate of tax. Um, the, the decision which we're expecting, which would be to not follow um, Rishi Sunak, will we'll bank them about half a billion pounds in additional tax revenue. Um, if, you, if you go on the 5.5 billion cut to revenue from the basic rate cut, this is fundamentally the biggest challenge facing the Scottish government over the next four or five years, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And as you said, I mean, the public sector stuff I didn't touch on, but that'll be massive. Uh, I think the Scottish government saying it's not going to go down the same route as the UK government in terms of cutting jobs, but uh, it's hard to see how they're going to get back to pre-pandemic levels purely on kind of natural people leaving the business and, you know, natural, I don't know what to call it, retirement or, or whatever. I think that'll be a huge challenge. And they've also kind of outlined plans to essentially sell off buildings because they want to reduce the kind of public sector footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that will lead to consolidation as well. They've hinted that they want to reduce the number of quangles, basically saying that all the kind of public sector, all the kind of public bodies in Scotland will have to kind of justify what they're doing, you know, why they're needed. Um, so it's going to be huge changes over the coming years. And I think, you know, we live in a time basically where budgets are just incredibly tight and difficult decisions do have to be made. But there's going to be a lot of unrest about this. I mean, we're already seeing this summer uh, a lot of industrial unrest. Uh, I think that's probably only only set to increase in the coming years if this is anything to go by um but yeah it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a huge challenge what, what i mean what it's interesting isn't it because i think the government in in west in butte house and in st andrew's house look at look at spending as a way to kind of differentiate themselves from westminster right that's the whole point is that they're they've got a control of i think it's a 45 you know nearly 50 billion pound budget um a third of that goes on health, and the rest of that is is up to them to decide to pay to spend on devolved stuff, and the social security stuff. I think it's worth you know us kind of talking about that. You know, the, 
That was a big win from the Smith Commission to get control of that those powers. It's taken a long time for them to to gain control of those powers and you know, for that trans, transfer of powers to happen. Um, and I think there was a figure that it was £1.2 billion pounds more um, will be spent in Scotland on Social Security um, than the government gets um, from the gov- from the UK government in in lieu of their payments. Um, there is a political point here being made, isn't there? By by the by the spending priorities of the government, they are prioritising. You know, they would argue mitigating UK government decisions. Yeah, and as I said, I think it's I think it's very much something that Nicola Sturgeon views as part of her legacy. When I wrote. Uh, a piece basically to mark Nicola Sturgeon becoming the longest Scotland's longest serving first minister. Uh, and I was speaking to people close to her. Um, this is basically one of the, one of the things that was said that the devolution of social security benefits is seen as a real kind of hallmark of our government. Uh, and basically setting up a kind of system in which Scotland can, as Nicola Sturgeon would put it, reverse some of the changes in, in the UK government when it comes to social security benefits. Um, but, the other side of that is it's hugely expensive and it basically just means that if you're spending money on that money has got it's got to come from somewhere um, and i think actually that old cliche about budgets you know being compared to household budgets which everyone always complains about when it's applied to the uk government because they obviously have massive borrowing powers is probably more applicable to scotland because scotland does not have the same borrowing powers so they do have to balance the budget to some extent you know they have to spend within their means they just they can't not um, so yeah, if, if you're if you're pumping money into social security, it's, it's got to come from somewhere else. And I think as we've seen in this, there are clear losers. And I think you look at things like councils. I think that that will be really one to watch in the coming years. I spoke to Alison Everson, the the president of COSLA, the council umbrella body, not that long ago, and she was basically warning that if things don't change in councils, if if they don't get more money, we're going to see cuts to frontline services, we're going to see cuts to libraries, we're going to see cuts to services that people use on a day-to-day basis, people are going to start to notice it uh, more so than they do now. It's going to become quite a big political issue. Uh, and I think we've also got major reforms coming up. You've got the National Care Service, which I know we've spoken about before in this podcast, but it's it's going to be a massive reform. Build as the biggest public sector reform since the birth of the NHS. COSLA hate it. Councils don't like it. They view it as centralisation. Uh, and I think how that's paid for, how that interacts with local government, I think will be a source of conflict in the coming years. Uh, but yes, yeah, it's, it's almost like the, again, to use another cliche, to, to govern is to choose. They're making choices. They're choosing what they're putting money into and there's going to be losers in the back of that. There was a lot of angry reaction, wasn't there, from particularly the, the fire service and and the police federation. You know, the p- police in particular um, are have been, I think it's the lowest officer numbers um, for for. For a long, long time, potentially, I'm right in saying it. Since the establishment of Police Scotland, it's the lowest officer numbers um, on the street, um, and you know the fire service as well. Not particularly happy. Um, I think it was. I think it was Callum Steele. You know, he's the general secretary of the of the Police Federation, saying, "You know, today is a good day for criminals," which you know feels feels slightly hyperbolic. But um, justice is the big, big loser here in terms of the. The overall spending priorities of the government, you know, despite the fact we've got a court backlog that might take five years or up to a decade to to clear, every single part of the justice system is now going to receive less money for how for their work. 
And that, that's going to be a big problem for the government, which is already kind of attacked for its, you know, quote unquote, soft touch justice system by by opposition. Yeah, yeah, it was Callum Steele. I think he was yeah. describing it as absolutely brutal. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, I mean, the, the Scottish Police Federation, Callum Steele, they're, they're very good at kind of grabbing headlines and the language they use. Um, but they, they have been raising concerns about the state of the police for years, about the number of frontline officers, about the condition of buildings, all these factors. Uh, and this is just going to lead to to less money for the service, to be honest. And the fire service as well, basically warning that it's going to be, you know, more dangerous for people in the back of this. They're losing money. And as you say, the courts and the justice system, and particularly we've got a legal aid, what, what the justice system would say is a legal aid crisis at the moment in terms of the funding for legal aid, which is a vital part of the justice system. Uh, and there's real concerns. I know the Law Society of Scotland was saying this yesterday, uh, on Thursday, there are real concerns about on Wednesday, sorry, about the impact this will have on legal aid, considering that there's just not, they would argue, just not enough money there in the first place. And this is going to make that worse. It's going to exacerbate that. Um, so yeah, I think justice is the big loser, certainly in terms of when you look across the overall portfolio, uh, some of it is just, it's quite stark. Absolutely. And I think the, the Fiscal Commission yesterday, you know, you mentioned the National Care Service, just to go back to that briefly. Um, there was definitely a concern from the fiscal commission i think concern is potentially you know a bit harsh but they were looking at um the spending plans for you know health and social care and going we don't really know where national care service comes into this because you know ultimately at the minute councils spend a lot of money on social care themselves the government spends you know a decent amount but the consolidation of that behind a national care service has to be paid for from somewhere. And, you know, if councils are getting no extra money, then you've got to wonder, are there, is their ability to spend on social care diminishing, you know, by the end of that? Because if that's the case, then it's not, doesn't seem to be replicated in the health and social care budget for the government. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're a couple of years away from the national care service being a thing, but the question of how that's funded, as you say, is, is unanswered. Um, let's talk about the elephant, uh, the independent elephant in the room, uh, which is, as you said, you know, to to govern is to choose, and the government has chosen to put aside twenty million pounds for an independence referendum that is definitely, absolutely, one hundred percent, no doubt about it happening next year. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this came up surprise, surprise in first minister's questions yesterday. Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross essentially going in on it. So they've made this choice to set aside £20 million for an independence referendum next year. Uh, and the point that Douglas Ross and other critics would make is that that money could be used for other things. It could be used for police officers, it could be used for nurses, it could be used for teachers. Uh, it could even be used, you know, that is roughly, or at least close to, some of the money that's being stripped from Historic Environment Scotland. Um, so, yeah, like you say, or like you were implying anyway, I think there's huge doubt, to say the least, about whether there is going to be an independence referendum the next year. So perhaps that money at the end of the day will just be able to shift into something else because it's probably, I mean, let's just be blunt about it, it's probably not going to be used. There probably is not going to be an independence referendum next year. But I think by setting, I think it's the first time actually we've seen, because usually independence referendum spending is just kind of consolidated into the wider constitution portfolio and you can't really mm -hmm. see how much money is being spent on it. Uh, in kind of particulars, but I think this is the first time we've seen that figure attached to it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it was always going to cause outrage among the opposition. Um, but I think we could probably see that either that money being shifted forward or being 
consolidated into other into other spending because I can't really see it being used next year anyway. It's, I mean, it's red meat, isn't it? It's red meat for the for the pro independence voter um, and the SNP voter who needs to, you know, see something, you know, proactive about a referendum, isn't it? I mean, it's, there's no there's no need for that money to be, you know, taken out of the constitution portfolio in the way it has been done. You know, it's got its own line for five years. You know, this is a four year long spending review, and the government have decided to make the political statement of putting that £20 million and the money for a referendum in its in its own year. I mean, that's a, it's, it's a political game, isn't it? It's not, it's, it, I mean, you can basically write it off and put it elsewhere in the budget. <laughs> I mean, it is a political game, but I mean, I suppose from the government's point of view, from the S&P's point of view, they were elected on a manifesto that included holding an independence referendum within the lifetime of this parliament, preferably in the first half, which means before the end of next year. So all they're doing is enacting a manifesto commitment and putting money aside for that. Uh, and if you don't like it, uh, then you've got to persuade people not to not to vote for them in the in the numbers they do. So they are just a, enacting a manifesto promise. Um, but yeah, it is red meat. It's it's showing activists and showing independent supporters that they do intend to do this. Um, I mean, in, in some way, shape, or form, in the coming months, we're going to come to a head on this. Either way, uh, we expect. The Scottish government to put forward an independence bill in Holyrood that could then be challenged by the UK government, go to the courts, all that kind of thing. There's going to be some kind of drama about this in the coming months, and this is just kind of tying into that. It's kind of teeing it up, putting the money aside, letting people know that they're still quote unquote serious about it. It's definitely going to happen. Um, so it's red meat in that regard, but yeah, they're just doing what they said they would do, so it's not a surprise in that way. No, absolutely not. And do, do, do we think, you know, looking at First Minister's questions yesterday, it was a a divergence of approach from the two opposition. As you mentioned, Douglas Ross going in hard on the uh, good investment line, I think it was, that came out of Nicola Sturgeon um, about the £20 million on IndyRef. And then you had Anna Sawa talking, you know, about how you've had the government have, you know, basically ruined the health service over the last 15 years. Is that, I mean, that's what he's implying, isn't it? <laughs> um, do, you, do you think those strategies work? Do you think they make a difference? Is it, you know, did they, did they really hit home? Cause it, it was a big, it's a big week. You know, we, we, last time we had a spending review was 11 years, 2011, you know, 11 years ago. These things don't come around a lot. It's an opportunity for opposition to really hit home on the failings of government and the potential future cuts and, I, I'm not convinced that the way they the two of them went on FMQs was the best way. Can't believe 2011 was 11 years ago. You've actually just you sparked an existential crisis for me. I, I, I was doing my GCSEs then, Alistair. Uh, well, I was in second year of uni, something <laughs> like that. Anyway, uh, I think I mean I think Douglas Ross's decision to go into it will have appealed to his base. It will have appealed to people who don't want a second referendum. It'll appeal to Tory supporters. They will be outraged. The 20 million pounds is being spent on that. I mean, £20 million in the context of this four-year financial plan is small beer. It's a tiny amount of money. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it would make a difference in certain areas. So you can't be too kind of uh, cavalier about it. I think, yeah, it will have appealed to his base. It's not going to appeal to people who disagree with him. It's not going to win people over. But it's, yeah, it's successful for him in that regard. Anna Sarwar going in on the health service, NHS waiting times. It's a good issue for Labour. It's an important issue. Uh, I think... One of the problems is that people are maybe getting, you know, rightly or wrongly fatigued about this. We hear about it all the time in the news um, and people do 
appreciate there was a pandemic. It has had a massive impact. I think one of the points that Anna Sarwar would make is that a lot of these problems were there long before the pandemic uh, and that the measures that have been put in place since haven't had the effect that the Scottish government maybe wanted. Uh, waiting times are still appalling. Um, but I'm not sure how much cut through it would have had. I haven't looked through all the papers today, but it didn't seem to get a huge amount of coverage. Um, so, yeah, it's a difficult one because spending review, it, it, it's, so, it's so important. You know, it's it's a really big issue, but yeah, I just don't know how much. Other than the cuts, which I think is a, the really obvious way into it, and that I think that will have cut through. And people will be very concerned about that, just within the wider cost of living crisis and the fall in disposable incomes. I think this is a, it's it's almost like a kind of 2008 crash terrain in which mm-hmm. it's just people just feeling huge pressures and huge worry about the future. Uh, I know I certainly do. I know you probably do in terms of things getting more expensive, what it's going to mean. Um, but yeah, it's it's a hard one for the opposition to. They've, they've basically just got to. It's such a it's such a huge. I suppose what I'm getting at is it's such a huge issue. And it's such a complicated document. You basically have to choose. If you're in FMQs and you're coming forward with you know, your set number of questions to try and pin Nicola Sturgeon down on something, you've got to choose a specific area. For the Tories, that's their decision to spend £20 million in a second independence referendum. And they think that works well for them. And to be fair to Douglas Ross, he kind of tied it into wider cuts and kind of wider mm. issues as well. And for Labour, it's health. It's the impact on health, the impact on the health service, and Nicola Sturgeon's kind of stewardship of it. Um so it's I, I don't see how else I think they kind of went in the lines we would have expected them to to be honest but no it's interesting isn't it because there's a um, I, I, I think there's a lot of big numbers there and I think you know the, Douglas Ross is, is slightly fighting with his arms tied around his, behind his back due to the fact that the UK government ultimately the, the Scottish government's budget is dependent on the UK government's spending decisions themselves. And the, the, the SNP know that. They know that they can you know, go for their grievance around a lack of decision-making or a lack of you know, additional funding. Um, so you kind of, you know, Douglas Ross is struggling to get to, you know, 1.1 billion cuts, particularly to justice. And then the easy response for Nicholas Surgeon is, well, your government spent more on justice yourself and you've got your own backlog then we would have more money to spend up here blah 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 um and i suppose with the cost of living crisis he also has the benefit of the windfall tax that was announced last week but it came two weeks after tory mps marched to the lobbies and said no and you know a day after partygate again it's not particularly easy for them um i do do wonder if anasawa would have been better off going on the bigger picture though um and you know really deep delving deep into you know how bad this is you know how much it's going to cost um you know asking sturgeon to guarantee certain funding at certain points or along those lines but you're right i think you know you pick one at one at smaller area to go for and you know hope for the best and that you can you can nail a nail the, the the first minister on it i think his his approach of using very specific figures um does make Nicola Sturgeon looks like she's not entirely on top of all of the detail. Um, but I do think there'll be people watching who will go, well, how, you know, I don't know how anyone standing up in, in the, in, in the chamber would understand or be able to answer a question as, as specific as the ones that Anna Sara was asking. Yeah. I'm never sure how successful that strategy is of kind of mm-hmm. coming up with a specific, you know, how many people are on X waiting list or how many people are, are on waiting lists 
at this present moment compared to 2014 or whatever, uh, and ex- you know, kind of making a point that Nicholas Sturgeon can't answer it straight away. I just, I'm never sure how successful that is. I know it's kind of seen as a good tactic, but um, I think a lot of people watching it would be like, well, it's it's unrealistic to expect someone to have all these facts and figures at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it really, I, I certainly don't think it really landed yesterday. There's been times before where I think it has. I certainly don't think it did yesterday. Um, and I think you're right. I think I would have expected them to maybe make a bit more of a, a bit, even if he went in on health in a later question to make a bit more of a big deal about council cuts, you know, the real impact that's going to have in communities, police, fire, you know, all these things. There's just so many, so many things to go on. But yeah, as, as I said before, it's, it's difficult to kind of, to kind of capture it all. Uh, and as you say, one of the, one of the problems I think certainly the, the conservatives have with this kind of issue is that Nicholas Sturgeon can just point to what's going, what's going on down in the UK government uh, and the kind of wider UK issues. Because so, while, you know, we said right at the beginning of this conversation, some of these issues are, you know, on the Scottish government, they are within the Scottish government's control. Some of them aren't, and you know we do have sky high inflation. Nicola Sturgeon yesterday was linking that to Brexit, uh, pointing out the UK is the worst in the in the G seven, I think, in terms of inflation. So there are just points she can automatically go to, and like you say, the Scottish government's kind of overall funding is just so dependent on its block grant from from Westminster. So it's always going to be an issue as well. Uh, I think to some extent income tax devolution has, has changed that narrative a little bit but not hugely i mean a lot of the funding still comes from westminster so yeah it's just an easy way for for the SP to swerve responsibility for things absolutely and i think absolutely. uh it's think, worth yeah. worth talking about um the uh poll that came out yesterday briefly um which uh caused a minor bit of consternation among the snp um because it showed that anasawa had a higher net satisfaction rating then nicholas sturgeon and and the snp uh decided to spin that as uh her the first minister still being the most popular uh politician in scotland so for for those who haven't seen that poll um nicholas sturgeon was on around i think 53 percent people think are satisfied with her but 41 percent are not satisfied with her as leader and asawa's equivalent was around i think 40 odd against 20, 26 odd. So, you know, the, the the net satisfaction was 19 plus 19 for Anasawa plus 12 for, for Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and the SNP decided to spin that as Nicola Sturgeon being simultaneously the most popular politician in Scotland and also because she has the second highest uh, dissatisfaction rating of all behind Douglas Ross, the second least, un- sorry, second most unpopular politician in Scotland, which is just baffling. But um, who knew? Um, do, do we think that Anasawa and Labour ha- are, are beginning to make inroads into the SNP? Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't take that poll as uh, as necessarily showing or demonstrating that. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, he certainly I think Anasawa is um, showing that he can be popular. You know, he's a popular politician, uh, certainly more popular popular than some of his predecessors. People tend to like him. He has a likability factor, which I think Scottish Labour are banking on to quite a big extent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost that kind of thing about, you know, who would you want to go for a pint with, and you know, who do you kind of kind of marring that likability with with being able to trust someone as well, which is the kind of two key things in politics. Um, in terms of, I mean, they're certainly making inroads against the Tories. I mean, that's just obvious. We saw that in the council elections, so they're becoming the main opposition again, which for them is a is a big deal. It's a, a big turning point. 
from the direction they were going in. Uh, in terms of making inroads against the SNP, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly not enough at the moment anyway. What do you think? Um, it's one of those things where I think they are evidently more popular than the Conservatives at the minute. And I think Sawa has um, a generally positive vibe, if you like, um, because I don't think he's actually really demonstrated um, or he's not really broken through into the public kind of conscience yet in the way that I think Douglas Ross um, probably has due to the party gate problems. And Douglas Ross is also sadly up against, you know, for him at least sadly, uh, up against you know half of the country disagreeing with with his constitutional stance. I think what's interesting for Anasawa's satisfaction, at least, is that you know he's he's still unknown by like twenty seven percent people, or at least you know twenty seven twenty five percent people, a quarter of the population don't have an opinion on Anas, and I think that's his biggest hurdle because at some point he will become the main story for a week or or two, and it's that. That's the critical juncture for for him is when, you know, can he convince enough people who are maybe wavering SNP voters or wavering green voters to to jump the fence and come over to his his side? Um, I think you look at the polling for Labour and they're still below 25%, I think, on certainly Holyrood voting intentions from by most pollsters. Um particularly i think it's similar numbers for the westminster general election voting intentions you know until they start hitting that 30% which is a long long way away and provided they have to be doing that also while eating into the snp's kind of overall um lead you cannot say that they are making any serious gains that would worry the snp and i think that's the critical thing is that provided the snp have around 40 to 44 45% of the vote, particularly in a general election, they're still going to almost wipe the board um, at the next general election. It's different in Holyrood. It'd be closer, it'd be tighter. You probably wouldn't see the SNP running away with close to a majority. But having said that, um, 2011 is a fantastic warning you know, for Labour that actually you, know, you need to be fighting them on an even keel because if you win constituency seats um that you maybe not didn't win before the SNP are going to pick up list seats where they otherwise might not um and i think until we're seeing them on 30 35 certainly 30 percent, i think is a big target for labor once they're back up there they're back in the game until then they're still scrabbling around for second place and that's not good enough for the party yeah uh, and i think i mean this is completely anecdotal so unscientific discard it <laughs> but i mean when i speak to people who are not in politics and aren't in journalism i mean they just don't know who anna sarwar is mm -hmm. they don't know who the leader of scottish labor is um and i think that's will remain a problem for them and i think it's obviously you know you, your extent of cut through with the public just comes when you've been you know he's not been in the role for that long comparatively it's quite hard to compete against someone like nicola sturgeon when it comes to that she's just so well known a from being the first minister but also b just through the pandemic and being in everyone's tv screens all the time um so uh, it's not necessarily a criticism of Anna Starwer because it's, it's something that's extremely hard to do, but I, it just will be a problem for them. Uh, and it's a problem for Douglas Ross as well. But it's just, I mean, that is one of the SNP's big assets. Not only do they have a structural advantage in Scottish politics in terms of being the biggest independence party, capturing, you know, pretty much 50% of the vote uh, or thereabouts, um, but they've also 
got Nicola Sturgeon, who's probably one of the most well-known politicians in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, if you at home think that Labour are cutting through, do let us know. Give us a tweet at the Scotsman. Um, in response to these tweet, in response to our podcast, we'll, we'll, we we can always read them out. Um, enjoy the Platinum Jubilee, Alistair. Um, and uh, we'll be back with normal Holyrood uh, functions next week. I think, won't we? I think so. Yep. <laughs> Enjoy it yourself as well. <laughs> Woohoo. Um, thank you very much at home for listening. Have a great, good long bank holiday weekend. Bye-bye. And once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this house and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Uh, lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, Word of warning, Prime Minister, that's not going to work with the police. (laughs) Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? (laughs) This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.